0: Well, good morning. My name is Roger Baker, associate pastor. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to call your attention to James chapter 3, particularly verses 13 through 16. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Okay. Now, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks or if you've tuned in to our messages, then, then you know that we've been thinking together about the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And we've been thinking together about the enormous implications for the Christian life. Kelly showed us a couple weeks ago that coveting actually precedes. That is, it comes before, and it initiates, and it sustains every other sin. When we transgress the law outwardly, it begins with a desire in the heart. When we transgress the law outwardly, it begins with a desire in the heart. It's when we prize something more than we prize Jesus, and that's what makes it idolatry. That's what makes a desire an evil desire. When I say, I need that more than I need Christ, at the level of desire, it's a rejection of God. That's what makes it wicked. Last week, we explored how pervasive and practical this is for us as we considered that this is really the case. This is what's going on. Whenever we have desires that are distorted in direction, when so we want the wrong thing, the thing that God says no to. And this is what's going on whenever we have desires that are distorted in degree. When we want a good thing more than we ought to. When we take good gifts that God gives us and and we make them ultimate things. It's a desire that's out of proportion. When I want that thing so much that I'm just not content without it. Or I'm willing to sin to get it. Or in rebellion I sin because I'm frustrated that I didn't get it. And we need to understand that this is is what's happening in our hearts when we're struggling with patterns of sin. This is what's happening in our hearts when we're not content, when we're dissatisfied, when we're grumbling. When we feel jealousy, resentment, lust, apathy, anger. Those things aren't really the problem, right? Those things aren't the problem. Those things are simply outward indicators. They are the natural progression and the inevitable end of desires that are in us. Those things are the natural progression and the inevitable end of desires that are in us. What I'm saying is that all of those things are a natural expression of worship. It's just that the wrong things are being worshipped. And this is why we can't get distracted by or content with just addressing Outward behavior we don't need to change our behavior we need to change the affections that that initiate and sustain those sinful behaviors we need to change the desires and kill the problem at the source we need our worship fixed right we need our worship fixed we need a cure at the heart level and we saw last week that the only cure is to cherish Christ. We need an overriding superior satisfaction in Jesus. We need to determine to make him the telos of our desires, the end of our desires, to make him our greatest treasure and to value him above everything and everyone else. But we also recognized last week that all believers, though raised with Christ, Though given a new nature and given the indwelling Holy Spirit to be led in the truth and to be empowered to seek the Lord and to make Jesus the end of our desires, though that's true, and though we're given real power for that, we're doing this alongside competing desires, right? We're doing this alongside competing desires. There's a remnant of the flesh that wants what is contrary to the Spirit. And right now we live in the tension of the already but not yet. We live in the tension of the already but not yet, and we're routinely faced with deadly enemies that seek to undermine the glory of God and our satisfaction in Christ. This is what I want us to see today. That perhaps the most threatening of the enemies that we could identify is the enemy of our own pride. The most threatening enemy which seeks to undermine the glory of God and your satisfaction in Christ is your own pride. In addition to that, what I hope we understand today is that where coveting is, that is where we find idolatrous desires, you'll find pride right there with it and vice versa. Which is why we need to confront covetousness with a heaping helping of humility. And this brings us to the premise of our message today. Prideful self-interest Leads to the enslavement of covetousness and never being content. A prideful self interest leads to the enslavement of covetousness and never being content, but cultivating Christ like humility leads to contentment and the sweet freedom of gladly forgetting about ourselves. The sweet freedom of losing sight of ourselves. Please follow along while I read the text. James 3, verses 13 through 16. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning to rightly understand what it is that you have to say to us. And God, I pray that you would help me not to just deliver a message, but God, that you would continue to be rearranging my heart and applying these truths to me. Help me to submit to the reality of what you're teaching us as a church. And I pray that as a a body of believers, those who are here today would show their love for you by listening well to you, that they would forget about me altogether and hear from you as you speak through your word today. We look forward to what you'll be doing in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Hey, now if you're looking at your outline, you're going to notice a few things. First, you'll notice that as we dig into this text, we're going to try to answer the question, what's the big deal with pride? It's a big deal with pride. How can I back up and prove the significant claim I just made that our pride's the most threatening enemy to God's glory and our joy? And to try to answer that question, how does prideful self-interest lead to the enslavement of never being content and how does humility lead to contentment and freedom? Another thing you'll notice is that I changed the way the first bullet point reads. We want to go with what's on the PowerPoint. That was my mistake. I sent it to Kara too soon. And the third thing you'll notice is that we're actually going to work through the text backwards and start at verse 16, but that wasn't a mistake. I've been accused of being backwards before, and there's times that that's true, but this is different. Okay, This is different. I think it'll serve us well if we see what's being taught first in verse 16, and then we'll unpack the rest of this text together, and I think you'll see what I mean. This will make sense as we go along. To, to help frame the context, I think it's helpful, I think it's important for us to understand what James is doing in this section from from kind of a bird's eye view and to see where our passage fits. We don't have time to, to really look closely at this, but, but if we took some time to examine chapter 3 through chapter 4, um, we'd see that there are multiple subsections in here that have particular application and very specific implications for us, but James is really addressing an overarching issue through all of this. And the overarching issue that James is primarily concerned with is the deep-seated heart issue of prideful self-interest, which is the opposite of humility. What James is showing us in this section is that wherever you find a number of different problems, you'll find prideful self-interest and coveting right there, at the source of the problem, and our text today is situated right in the middle of this broader issue. So let's keep that in mind, that that this is the issue James is addressing, and let's jump in starting with verse 16, where James teaches us that pride and coveting are closely related. Pride and coveting are closely related. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder And every evil practice. James is saying that where you find disorder, which can refer to disturbance or upheaval, in other words, he's saying where there's trouble, where you find trouble, and where you find every evil practice, which means every evil practice, every evil deed, every evil action, every evil pursuit, every evil intention, where you find all those things, you know what's right there with it? Envy and selfish ambition. Envy and selfish ambition. Now now when we think of selfish ambition, we probably have in mind what we think that looks like, and I'll bet we can conceive of somebody who who uh, cheats their way to the top, or somebody who takes advantage of others for personal gain, and that's that's certainly accurate, okay, but that's not all that this is. And it's not always so blatant. But it is always so dangerous. Listen to me, please. Envy and selfish ambition, which is there behind every evil practice according to James, is referring to a passionate commitment to one's own interest first. A passionate commitment to one's own interest first. It's jealousy for one's own welfare. It's an overestimation of one's own importance. At the level of desire, it's placing one's own self Above the interest of others. We're defining pride, aren't we? That's pride. What James is describing is pride. The opposite of humility. And he says, it's right there. It's right there where you find every evil practice. Prideful self-interest is present when we desire and practice evil. All right, so kids, are you, are you listening? It's it's family movie night. and And your brother or sister says, I want to watch this movie. But you say, I want to watch this other movie, to which your other sibling says, but we never watch what I want to watch, to which your mom says, you're all going to go to bed early and watch it get dark if you don't knock it off. <laughs> now, that, that sounds funny, but it's really not, right? It's, it's unsophisticated, and it seems silly, but that's, that is selfish ambition and envy that's working itself out, outwardly, visibly seen through covetous dissatisfaction and an outward sinning against other people. That's not so cute now, right? But it's not just things that are are that obvious either. Look at what he says. Where you have selfish ambition, that is where you have a prideful self-interest, a self-first attitude, there you find every kind of evil practice every kind in other words selfish ambition prideful self-interest being consumed with a me-first mindset is a necessary companion a necessary companion to every evil practice and it's not just the things that are silly or obvious james says it's there pride is there with every evil practice every ugly attitude every harsh word, every dissatisfied grumble, every lazy omission of what I ought to do, every time I withhold mercy or forgiveness, every time I lose my patience, it's there. The thing that makes any of that possible is an overestimation of my own importance and a commitment to my own welfare. The thing that makes every kind of evil practice possible is an overestimation of my own importance and a commitment to my own welfare. Pride is necessary for all kinds of sin. But what does that have to do with coveting? As we pointed out over the last two weeks, coveting precedes and supports all of our outward expressions of sin. So when we see every every kind of evil or every evil practice here in verse 16, we know that coveting is behind it initiating it sustaining it otherwise it wouldn't be there okay because if we weren't coveting we'd be satisfied in god and we wouldn't have desires that are distorted in in degree or in direction and we wouldn't transgress the law outwardly those desires wouldn't culminate in an outward sin and james says right there with it right there with that coveting is envy and selfish ambition a passionate commitment to my own welfare a love of self a pride so think about this with me. You remember Jesus saying that the whole law hangs on these two commands. Love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul affirms, love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13. Huh. Okay. I have to see, in order to have a covetous desire, I have to be prideful. This has to be the case. If the whole law is summed up in loving God and loving neighbor, that leaves only one direction to go in order to transgress the law, and that would be love of self. Right? If I'm loving God and loving my neighbor, I won't dishonor God. I won't harm my neighbor. In order to have a covetous desire that turns away from the Lord, I have to, in that moment, perceive myself as being above, finding my satisfaction in the Lord. Who he is, what he says, what he's done. It's not going to be enough for me right now in this moment. And I'm thinking that I can do better than that. And that's not loving towards God. And it's proud, right? In order to act on that desire and transgress the law, I have to see myself as being above my neighbor. Think about it. If I'm willing to ignore what's good for you for my own sake, if I'm willing to harm you or neglect you, Failed to love you for my own benefit. That's pride. Can you see how pride is a close companion to coveting? You see how when we have distorted desires that are unloving towards God and towards others, it's impossible without being proud. It's impossible without being proud. Beyond that, we know that coveting and prideful self-interest go hand in hand because coveting results from the belief that I I can't be satisfied with what I have right now. It results from the belief I can't be satisfied with what I have. The, The conviction that things aren't good enough. I have to be convinced that I deserve something I'm not getting. There's something or maybe some things that I've perceived to be a right or a need and I've been denied those things. And therefore, I'm not okay. This is, a, this is a mindset that won't be satisfied. Pride and coveting are both insatiable and have no end. There is no end to this. Now, I think most people would be on board with me here at least up to a certain point. Okay, but let's pause for just a minute. I'm not, I'm not primarily asking you if you're going to be okay without a big swanky house or without an extravagant lifestyle. All of that applies, and I don't I don't want to act like that's not an issue, but I think that's too obvious, okay? I think that's too obvious, and I think that if I were to ask everybody in here, um, I think that I would be hard-pressed to find a handful of people that would tell me, Raj, I'm not going to be okay unless I have those things. So here's what I want to know. Are you going to be... Patient and gentle with the kids when they're acting like turkeys and interfering with what you want to get done. Are you going to be alright if your boss doesn't acknowledge you and give you a promotion? Are you going to shut down when criticism comes? You're going to be alright if your spouse isn't meeting your expectations. Single people, are you going to be okay if you never have a spouse and stay single? Are you going to stay sexually pure? Think about this with me, guys. Why do we get impatient with our kids? What's necessary for that to happen? Why are we cold towards a spouse who fails in an area? Why does it bother me that I didn't receive that affirmation I expected? And why do I tend to withdraw when I'm criticized? Why does it bother you that your job's not more fulfilling? Why are we often unsettled with our circumstances? What's necessary for that? Please don't mishear me. Hey, some of these and other circumstances might be an occasion for appropriate Christ-honoring grief and a godly lament which is suitable to sad and difficult circumstances, I don't mean to ignore that. It would be wrong if certain things didn't make you sad, right? If certain things didn't grieve you. But listen, would I snap at the kids if I believed that shepherding them through their difficulty was a gift to me and not an inconvenience? And why did I believe it was an inconvenience at all to begin with? Would I be able to get into a bad mood when you don't affirm me if I never felt entitled to that affirmation? Would someone be frustrated with their spouse if they were absolutely convinced that their own sin was just as bad as their spouse's and that their spouse's needs were far more important than their own? Would an employee be resenting their job if they believed that the job they had is a gift they didn't deserve? hear me guys I don't I don't mean to say that that there would be no honest recognition of difficulty or brokenness in these things but would we be able to get severely or completely unsettled by these things if we were walking in humility and setting ourselves and setting our own interests aside or is pride necessary in order for us to be unsettled in those circumstances do we necessarily have to have a high view of self? You see, coveting, which leads to every evil practice, what we're doing, we're looking to God, and we're saying, come on, you can do better than this. I know, God, that you can do better than this for me. Don't you know that I'm supposed to be respected and affirmed? I deserve that, and I need people to approve of me. I'm supposed to be healthy and not not in pain. I'm too young for this. I'm supposed to be married by now. And the the spouse that I have should be meeting these certain needs of mine. I should be close to the, the top of the ladder at my job by now. I should have obedient and respectful kids. God, you haven't given me what I need. You see how pride and coveting are closely related? You cannot separate the two. When we begin to function with a prideful self-interest and a passionate commitment to our own welfare, we've determined not to love God and our neighbor ahead of ourselves and we've started down a trajectory of never being satisfied. Pride and covetousness have no end. More will never be enough. Their nature is inherently insatiable. And that's why pride leads to every evil desire. Now in the moment it seems wise. In the moment, it seems wise. Pride seems wise, but I promise you, it's nothing to be proud of. Look at verses 14 and 15. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. Do not boast about it and deny the truth. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, that is, if you harbor pride, if you're holding on to, that's what this idea of harboring means. If you're holding on to this passionate commitment to seeking your own interests, if you have a me first or a what about me attitude, James says, don't boast about it. Don't boast about it. Now, the, the word that's translated boast, it means to exult in or to declare that it's right. It's what you do when you hear something that you agree with and you say, amen to that. Amen to that. That's the way that it should be. You're boasting about it, exulting in it. You're agreeing with it and affirming that you think it's right. James says, don't do that. Don't do that. When you have prideful self-interest in your heart and you declare that it's right, when you double down and say that's the way that it should be, you deny the truth. Literally, he says, you speak against the truth. When I say it's right to put me first, I'm speaking against the truth. Pride is fundamentally Against the truth. James is saying that if you're believing that you should be first, that your interests should come before another's, then you're believing a lie. You are professing a lie and you're believing a lie for at least two reasons. First, if you're believing that it's right to put yourself first, that your concerns are of greatest concern, that what matters to you is what matters most. It's against the truth because it's the product of a disproportionately high view of self. When we think this way, we're thinking too highly of ourselves. Our view of self doesn't match up with what is true. In other words, you ain't so hot, right? You ain't so hot. Who do we think we are to esteem ourselves as, as being more important than anybody else? Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 3-4. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Paul says, don't forget about the grace that's been given to you. Don't forget that you deserve nothing, that you were lost when he found you, that you were helpless when he helped you, that you were an enemy when he befriended you, that you were dead when he raised you. And when you forget about that and start to have an inflated view of yourself, An inflated view of your own importance. James says, Paul says, it's not sober judgment. It's not sober judgment. It's not true. But at the same time, don't don't forget that he did find you. Don't forget that he has helped you. If you're in Christ, don't forget that you have been raised up and adopted as his very own. And you lack nothing if you're in him and you have everything that you need. Think soberly about that. Don't forget that you have all of that, that you have God himself. And don't pridefully start to think it's not enough. Don't pridefully start to think that that's not going to cut it. Don't exchange that for something lesser. You see, it's prideful to start thinking that we don't have all that we need in Christ. It's prideful as if that's not enough to have our greatest needs met and our eternity secured. An inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. You got Jesus if you're in Christ. Don't believe that's not enough. It's false and it's tragically wrong. It's tragically wrong, which leads us to the second reason why prideful self-interest is against the truth. Listen, when we believe that seeking self-interest first, that seeking self will satisfy, we're believing a lie. The, the unhappiest people that you know are the people that think most highly of themselves. And the most miserable you've been is when you've thought most of yourself. When we believe that putting ourselves first is the key to being happy and fulfilled. We've been duped. It doesn't work. You know this. You end up miserable and dissatisfied because this prideful mindset is linked to covetousness. And covetousness is never satisfied. The fastest way to ruin yourself is to make much of yourself. Right? The fastest way to ruin yourself is to make much of yourself. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs eighteen twelve. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. So let's talk about this for a minute. You might uh, you might be here this morning and and you're hearing this, and you know that you have been blatantly seeking your own interests first. That you've been too wrapped up in yourself and and you know that the damage that it's doing in your relationships. And I I pray that if that's you and you see that, that by God's grace you would repent. You'd heed these warnings and that you would repent. But I'll bet folks that would identify with that are few and far between and that more of us are here this morning and, and there's some ways that we didn't see this coming. Bear with me for a minute here. Are you having persistent trouble in your marriage or another relationship around the same issues, but you haven't been able to get to the bottom of it? It keeps resurfacing. Here we are again. Do you continue to be frustrated with your circumstances or where you're at in life right now, but you you have a hard time identifying why? Are you dissatisfied with your job? parents are you irritated with your kids or kids are you irritated with your parents are you frustrated by the needs of others or the sins of other people are you fighting discouragement and a lack of contentment proverbs 18 do you does it seem like you're experiencing a downfall in certain areas Now, I know that there can be a lot of factors involved in such things. But have you explored the possibility that your pride can be a significant part of the problem? Is it possible that there are certain things that you thought were needs or rights or just a given in your life, but somehow you've been denied those things and they haven't panned out, your expectations haven't been met, and you're reeling from that? You've lost something precious to you, and you're having a hard time being okay with that. Okay, When you inventory your life and your circumstances, how did you arrive at the conclusion that things aren't as they ought to be? Is that really just an honest recognition of the impact of the fall, or is there necessarily a conviction, conviction in your heart that you deserve better? Is your frustration with life really an honest recognition of the impact of the fall? Or is it necessarily accompanied by a conviction that you deserve better? Listen, I'm, I'm with you. This is us, isn't it? This is all of us, right? I would encourage all of us to be asking the Lord to help us see the ways that we're holding on to prideful self-interest. And that we would plead with God to set us free, that we would be laboring to try and see these things and make war against them, because seeing these clearly and addressing it rightly is against every natural impulse that we have. It's against every natural impulse that we have. Pride seems wise to the world. Pride seems wise to the world. Worldly wisdom will affirm your sinful pride all day long, and at first blush, your pride will will seem like wisdom to you, right? 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 And you guys know what I mean. It seems right to insist on certain things. It comes very naturally for us to pursue our own welfare. You don't have to teach people how to be selfish. Go to a daycare. When when we do have trouble, when we do have trouble, we give an ear to how the world tells us to address that trouble. It often appeals to our prideful self-interest rather than confront it. Man, it feels right. When the therapist tells you that your sin is justified because you didn't receive something you needed when you were a child. When your friend tells you that you shouldn't have to put up with your spouse's sin because you deserve better than that. When you start thinking, man, I've had a long, hard week. I don't want to come home to a mess or deal with so-and-so's such-and-such. Or when the world explains that our sinful expressions of selfishness are caused by a lack of self-esteem. Sounds right to me at first blush when we turn to relationships or lust or substances or we throw ourselves into our vocation because we're desperately looking for the affirmation we didn't get somewhere else. Man, that sounds right to me. I need self-esteem, but you know what the problem with that is? There's not enough affirmation in the entire universe to fill the black hole of my covetous desire to be esteemed. You won't find enough affirmation to fix that problem. The problem is not that we have a low self-esteem. The problem is that we esteem ourselves too highly. These things sound right to us. It sounds like wisdom, but it's not real wisdom. It's worldly. It's not from God. It's fleshly. It belongs to the unregenerate nature and it's demonic. That means it's the same kind of wisdom. That demons have let me tell you one of the ways that i think this can sneak up on us in the church one way that pride seems wise when it isn't listen while i quote c.s lewis in a chapter of mere christianity that he dedicated to pride he said it's a terrible thing that the worst of all vices that is pride can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride or, as they call it, his self-respect to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill-temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he's setting up in you the dictatorship of pride just as he would be quite content to see your fever cured if he was allowed to in return give you cancer, for pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride can seem wise, but it's nothing to be proud of. And this this problem that we have, this problem that we have with pride, we need to understand is not primarily a problem with what's going on, around us it's a problem within us okay it's a heart problem the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart and what i mean is that this is an inside out problem not an outside in problem i'm not this way because of what has happened to me i'm not this way because of what has happened to me now those things are relevant but they are not sufficient Those experiences that we tend to blame for our propensity to exalt ourselves, they're only effective when they cooperate with a heart that's predisposed to prideful covetousness. They're not sufficient without pride. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 verse 15 and 21 through 23. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetous desires, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man clean. We got an inside out problem. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but we need to recognize that if we're serious about growing in godliness, If we are serious about killing covetousness and cultivating contentment, if we're serious about correcting the many manifestations of disordered worship in our lives, we must begin by acknowledging that the problem, not the solution, but the problem is within us. The problem's right here. You see, it's pride that says my sin is ultimately because of something that happened to me. And I don't have responsibility in the matter. It's pride that says if I could go back and heal that wound, then I wouldn't struggle with this right now. On the other hand, it requires a great act of humility to say that even though I've been through some tough stuff, that stuff is not sufficient to make me sin. I'm going to examine my heart and repent of the pride that made it possible. That requires humility that comes from a godly wisdom. Which takes us to verse 13 and getting to our final point. Requires a humility that comes from a godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is proven in in a Christ-like humility. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Godly wisdom is proven in Christ-like humility. True wisdom will result... And true hum- humility, true wisdom will result in true humility. Here's what I mean. When James refers to wisdom and understanding, he's talking about the ideas of a cultivated skill and an experiential knowledge. This is real know-how. He's saying, if anybody has real know-how, let it let it be seen. In his humility. Anybody ever try to tackle a do-it-yourself or project and then realize that you should have called somebody? What went wrong? You YouTubed it, right? You had some knowledge of what to do, but you lacked the cultivated skill or the wisdom and the experiential knowledge, the understanding to get it done. Tracking with me? When you, you see a guy like my dad who's been finishing concrete for decades... Uh, he knows exactly what to do when to do it he gets the right thing done at the right time in the right way far more efficiently than than i ever could it's it's real know-how right real know-how in action this is what james is talking about but he's not he's not talking about being wise in any worldly sense he's talking about biblical wisdom biblical wisdom which is really the skill Of living in a way that pleases the Lord. Biblical wisdom is is that that real understanding of knowing how to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And, And the beginning of real biblical wisdom is the fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord. A reverential awe of God. And the fear of the Lord naturally produces humility. The fear of the Lord naturally produces humility. To know God. To catch a glimpse of who He is. And to see ourselves in comparison is a pride-crushing experience. To see God and to see yourself in comparison is a pride-crushing experience. Listen to Lewis again. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It's better to forget about yourself altogether. Hmm. Catch a glimpse of who... God is is a pride-crushing experience. You see, James is saying, friends, you cannot be walking with God and have a current, fresh, experiential knowledge of what it means to be at his feet and worshiping him without being humbled. You cannot be walking with God and have a current Fresh, experiential knowledge of what it means to be at His feet and worshiping Him without being humbled. Now you might be able to have the DIY wisdom, of a vague idea of His holiness, a faint reminder of His character, but current communion with God naturally crushes our pride and produces our humility. If your religiosity is improving or increasing your pride, then you're not worshiping God. Communion with God naturally crushes our pride and produces humility. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see what happened to Isaiah? Humility will be a natural byproduct of knowing the superiority of God. A clear-eyed view of the Lord will chasten us like it chastened Isaiah. A clear-eyed view of God will chasten us. And by God's grace, an authentic relationship with Him will result in growing in humility Because humility is a natural byproduct of knowing the superiority of God. As seen with the eyes of faith, we can strive to have such a clear-eyed view in part by dwelling on the person of Jesus Christ and His example for us. True humility is seen in Christ. True humility is seen in Christ. This is what Paul calls us to do In Philippians, he calls the church to walk in humility, to set their own interests aside for the sake of others. He calls us to consider Jesus. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but namely to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Let's not miss this. This is one of the stunning realities of the good news of the gospel. Stunning reality of the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who is co-equal, co-eternal with God, made a decision not to use his equality with God for his own benefit. He didn't cling to it for his own self-interest. Instead, he humbly took on flesh in order to go and be obedient to the law that you and I could never keep. And not only so, but he came not only to be righteous for us, but to die for us. Jesus had done no wrong. He was absolutely perfect in every way. And yet he chose to take the place of hell deserving sinners like us and die like a criminal in order to redeem us. You are not going to find a greater act of humility. There is no greater act of humility than the incarnation and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now, listen for a minute. If if you haven't understood or believed this good news about how Jesus came to die for you, how he offers you the gift of salvation in him by paying for your sins and by living a perfect life for you. I pray that you would be humbled today and that you would put your hope in him alone. Cry out to him, humbly acknowledge your need for him. And if you have questions about that, or if you need help, ask me, ask somebody here. We want to help you. now in the same way that there could be no greater act of humility than the incarnation and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, for those who have received that gift, for those who are in Christ, for those who believe that and by God's grace that's been applied to you, there can be nothing more humbling than considering that. How do I, how do I believe that and get proud? You see, when we remember this, when we breathe that air and we live in that truth, the truth that I was absolutely nothing and deserving only of God's wrath. And yet he died for me. And when we acknowledge that our greatest needs are secured in Christ. We can experience the freedom of not needing to be so wrapped up in our own interest. And we can enjoy the ability to forget about ourselves, and serve the Lord and love others. Meditating on who Jesus is and what he's done for you is key to forgetting about ourselves and enjoying the freedom of serving the Lord and loving others. I'm going to put some questions up for reflection. And at the end of that reflection time, I'm going to close us in prayer. Let's take a couple minutes and ponder these quietly together. I want to invite you to pray along with me. I'm going to read part of the confessional prayer of a proud and selfish man. and I want to ask you to personalize this this morning. Pray with me. God, please help me. I am at all times, all together, far too aware of myself and scarcely aware enough of others and of you, Lord. Lord, would you please help me to know you as immeasurably superior in every way and therefore to know myself as nothing and to find in that emptying of self the great fulfillment of knowing you and loving others more than I thought possible. Please free me from the slavery of proud selfishness and release me to a lifestyle of radical generosity which I gladly give of my time, my resources, and myself, knowing that I have nothing and I am nothing apart from you. Please be so kind as to replace my entitled grief with selfless joy. Please replace my prideful depression with humble thanksgiving. Please stir in me a happiness anchored not in a love of self but in a love of you please grant me the mercy of being in your presence that I might behold you and be so caught up in you and in the pursuit of your glory through the good of others that I taste the sweet freedom of gladly forgetting about myself altogether. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me. It is a sweet freedom to be able to leave off self-concern, isn't it? To be able to not be consumed with self and to be free to rejoice in your circumstances, to be free to give thanks no matter how things are going. One of the sweet ways that we have an opportunity to leave off self-concern is by demonstrating a concern for others in the way that we declare the gospel while we walk the well-worn path of our lives. So as we go out this week, think about, how you can be giving thanks to God in your circumstances, setting yourself aside, and growing in a love for others and a concern for others that takes shape in your displaying and declaring the gospel in your life. Have a great week. God above.